Remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 3. I will be reading verses 14 through 21. This is the gospel lesson. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Instead of light because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God, the word of the Lord. I read recently, um, I didn't read the study, but about a study, that apparently emanates from Duke University, which uh, the study studied the brains of uh, people who are born again and people who are not. I wonder what the motivation of that would be. Nonetheless, uh, according to this study, the brains uh, of people who who uh, were born again later in life uh, had atrophied, smaller, and uh, much smaller than those uh, mainliners uh, who, who had no born again experience. And so uh, I don't know altogether what this means. Uh, I uh, don't make too much out of this, particularly, I guess, when we live in the day of junk science and when a lot of people do science to get money from the government or to, to advocate a cause. But uh, the upshot is, I think, I guess, what we're trying uh, to do here is that if you are seriously uh, committed to Christ and you talk about a born-again experience, you're just a little bit dumb. You're just a little bit, uh, should I say, compliant. Uh, just a little bit behind. Now, of course, this is ridiculous. Uh, and uh, it was done, no doubt, uh, for one reason, one reason only, and that was to denigrate uh, the cause of Christ in some way. Just don't take your religion too seriously and you'll be all right. But if you take it too seriously, my friend, uh, it will stunt you. Well, I'm not going to talk about that today, but it is in this text. If you read uh, this chapter, if you read this chapter, you'll see that there is that passage uh, 
beginning of John chapter 3, where Jesus talks about being born again. And I suppose that if you are denigrating that kind of experience, you're also denigrating the teacher who taught it. Wouldn't you say? I think so. But what I do want to talk about today is the basis for experiencing Christ through faith. I suppose almost everyone here in this worship service today would say that you know Christ and that you have experienced his presence and that you have a hope in him. But I want you to notice once again, though you know this, you must see it, I, I think, in relief. You must see it in bold letters that we are saved through the cross of Christ. We are saved through the cross of Christ. Now, I know you know that because you also know John 3.16, which Martin Luther said was the gospel in a nutshell. God sent his son into the world, the text says, to seek and to save the lost. And that this sending, this one coming into the world, his humiliation, even his suffering, suffering to death on the cross is God's way of salvation. It is his way of speaking to us and giving us hope. It is through the cross of Christ. I want to look only at a couple of verses here. There's too much here that's too rich to even get into, so I cannot deal with the text entirely. I really can only deal with verses 14 and 15 today. The first thing that I want you to notice is that the cross possesses healing and saving power in itself. The word in the New Testament most often referring to healing and saving power is the word sozo. There, it means both things. There is no separate word that God saves us. There's no separate word that God heals us. What it means is that in the cross of Christ, there is a power to restore a power indeed in this life to heal us. And in eternity, we will all be healed. In this life to save us, but for all eternity. This is what the cross of Christ is for the Christian. And to come to understand what this cross is, is to experience a new birth, a new way of looking at things, a new heart that loves God. And it's important that you see, I think, what the cross really is. The Old Testament lesson that was read to you today comes from Numbers. An incident happened there which Jesus quotes. And that is, the children of Israel began to complain, as they always did. They didn't like the food. They didn't like the circumstances. They didn't like their leaders. They didn't like anything. Nothing was right for them. It was not enough for God to take them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, which they had been subjected to. Now, let me say something about freedom and security. In this world, sometimes we will sell out for security rather than cherish our freedoms. Politicians know that. Uh, those who exert great influence in life outside of politics know that. And these people were ready to go back to Egypt if they could just have some security. 
Think of that. Did not cherish the freedom, the liberation that God had given to them to be his people and to experience him. They would rather go back to Egypt. And they began to complain. And God sent among them fiery serpents. Now, obviously, these fiery serpents meant poisonous serpents. A lot of people are afraid of snakes. And so God sends them this judgment, if you will, upon their complaining. And they begin to die right and left. And they come to Moses. And they plead with him to do something. And he goes before the Lord and the Lord commands him to make a brazen serpent in the likeness of that which was biting them. And to lift it up and whoever looked upon that serpent would be healed or saved. The look of faith. Jesus introduced that here and he, and he introduces it in such a way that his cross means that. It has healing power, and to look to that cross and to look unto him is to be saved. Now, I want you to see the language, starting at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and he was lifted up on a cross, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. It is through the cross, then, that we are restored to God, It is through the cross that the very thing that is the problem, the venom mistake, it is through looking at it that we are saved. You know, there's an interesting verse in the scripture where it says that Jesus became sin for us. One who knew no sin. And when he became sin for us and he died on the cross for us to look at that and to look unto that as your remedy that you might be saved, that you might be healed, is your salvation truly. And so Jesus, too, is that serpent on the cross. Let me also say say that the cross stands for something else here. Even though I'm only looking at a couple of verses, these two verses are very rich in their meaning. Look at uh, verse 14 again. Just as Moses lifted up, The word lifted up here means to exalt. What is interesting, and if you were to do a study in the New Testament of the word exalt, you would discover that it is used in the preaching, for instance, of Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he talks about Christ being exalted through his cross. Or you can look at Philippians, and I'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, and just to give you an idea of what this means in verse 9. In this wonderful passage that is a very intimate and personal letter that Paul wrote, he writes this way. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father." Now, what is interesting here is that the cross of Christ is is identified with the very exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Jesus in his cross, when he was dying on the cross, there is a glory there. A glory and an exaltation on the cross. 
Easter, we will sing one of our uh, hymns in the hymn book. That's my, one of my favorites, clearly, Lift High the Cross. Why lift high the cross? Because it is the remedy for our sins. And there's a kind of glory and exaltation in that cross. Let me say that uh, the cross is not, uh, when you see it, a sacramental sign in the way that the water is for baptism. It is not a sacramental sign in the way that the bread is and the wine is for communion. It has not been appointed for that purpose. But it is interesting how important the cross has become. It identifies Christianity, does it not? Wherever you see the cross of Jesus Christ, even when that institution still has the cross, it may have removed considerably from its original uh, founding, such as I, can th- I won't name some institutions. But when you see the cross, you think of Christ. There's an intimate relationship between the cross and what Christ has done for us in a symbolic way. You know, the cross of Christ is not entirely a bare symbol. Let me illustrate to what I mean. Many symbols are not just bare symbols. What would some of you think if you were to go to the Goshen courthouse and you indeed were going to make your voice heard on Friday uh, between noon and one o'clock? And a counter demonstration came along and they ripped down the flag and threw it on the steps and burned it. Would you say, oh, that's just a bare symbol? It doesn't mean anything. No, I think many of you become irate. You might even say, this is awful. This is a desecration. And you would feel it to your bones. My friend, the cross of Christ stands more to us than does the flag of the United States. And I love this country. And it does hurt me to see people denigrate the flag or some other symbol that has come to represent the people in this great nation. But how much more is the cross of Christ that goes to the very heart of our salvation? This man who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that through his cross we might become rich. To identify with that cross of Jesus Christ. Many churches have a cross. We, we plan on having a cross bef- uh, too in the future. Uh, some of you wear a cross around your neck. I, I don't wear symbols or do anything. It's just my nature. But on the other hand, it's a cherry sign, isn't it? Some people make the sign of the cross. Or this way, depending on whether you're Greek or Roman Catholic. Some Anglicans, some Protestant Lutherans do it. I don't. But I reverence it. Why? The cross of Jesus Christ is his exaltation. It possesses a kind of glory. Notice that wonderful hymn, and I'm not sure that it is even in our hymn book. In the cross of Christ I glory. John Browning wrote that in the uh, 19th century. In the cross of Christ I glory. Let me tell you, that man understood something very profound about the cross. That it is not only that which saves us, but it possesses a kind of glory. Now, in order to appreciate that, how does the world often see it, and particularly in Jesus' day? Well, he died 
as a felon on a cross. He deserved it. He died as a criminal. And the world in many quarters still thinks that Jesus' whole life was nothing but a criminal exercise in duping the people. If you read Christopher Hitchens' writings or some of the others, you will see how despicable the cross is to them and what it means. My friend, every Christian cherishes the cross of Jesus Christ. And they cherish that cross because Jesus indeed died on one for you and for me. And it represents God's salvation to us. Now, this salvation, of course, is to be received in faith. There is no question that this text, though there are only a very few words, notice it again. Just as Moses lived up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Belief in him. You know, belief in the New Testament is not just merely and simply some intellectual exercise. It's actually a kind of trust. You know, one of the, one of the most hurtful sins is betrayal, isn't it? We become associated with someone. We get to know them. It may be at work. It may be a spouse. It may be a child. And they break trust with us. And we are hurt deeply. That goes to the heart, uh, uh, in a real sense, of the deepest kind of sin that one can commit. A betrayal of a person. When, when Dante uh, wrote the Inferno, on the lowest circle of hell were betrayers. A serious sin. A serious sin. We believe in commitment. We believe in trusting one another. And it is at the heart of our relationship. God has chosen to save us through trust in his name. And that is a marvelous truth. Now, Ephesians tells us that this trust, though, is in itself not a work, but it is a gift. The Apostle Paul writes as clearly as anyone could write about faith or trust in Christ. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it and the it refers to faith. It is God's gift to you. Finally, in the cross of Christ, we are saved through gift. God has done something for us that we could not and we would not do for ourselves. If you keep reading, you see that. I'll come back to this just one second. But let me say something else about the cross of Christ. This cross leads us to eternal life that anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The word eternal life in the New Testament is actually not to be translated in one sense, eternal life, though we do. The word actually means in the next age. You are saved to live in the next age. Now, this is kind of a fine point, you might say, because I'm still going to end up that you have eternal life. But notice... You are saved to live in the next life. And that life is with God. And because he is eternal, you too share in that life. We could say that we are saved to live in a world where time doesn't count. 
How time counts in this world, huh? All of us are grabbed by the clock. We have too much to do in too little time. Have you ever noticed that when you're young and you don't have a lot to do, life is so slow. But as you get older and you, you pick up speed, it's still the same time. But hope how fast it goes. You ever hear a, an older person say, as they grow older, time is just flying. Time grabs us at every moment. Time is an interesting concept. We live in time and space. And I can say that the future, time, will bring you both good and evil. It does not allow us to remain the same. The time always catches us. It catches us with respect to our health. It catches us with respect uh, to some dates that we have to make and miss. I've got one April 15th. I'll be working on that pretty soon. That's one I better not miss. And so time in this world is always reaching out and grabbing us, pressing us. And with time comes sadness and with time comes blessing. But we are being saved to live a life with God where time doesn't count. Think of that. You still live maybe in time. But it doesn't count. You'll have time to fill out your income tax. I don't think there's going to be a tax on us. You'll have time for those things for your children. You'll have time to do those things. For God saves us to live with him. That's what the cross of Christ does. We're, we're not being saved to live under a palm tree and, and, and just simply cool ourselves off by a fan of some sort or to sit with a pair of wings and strum a harp. That is a total misconception of what life with God is all about. There'll be work, enjoyment, opportunities to grow. It is through the cross of Christ that you have that hope that you will live in the next life, in the next age, where time doesn't really count like it does in this sinful world. Back to the cross of Christ. Oh, what a marvelous, marvelous truth this is. We are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves. It is God's good and gracious gift to you. My friend, when we talk about the cross of Christ, we're talking about the Savior. That cross has significance for one reason. Who was on it? Now, I want you to notice that his cross actually saves. It doesn't leave you in limbo. It really accomplishes something. Notice the language of the New Testament. It is the proclaiming and preaching of that cross that is the power of God unto salvation. It actually saves people. You know, for a number of years, I taught world religion. And I, for many years, I was reading more literature in Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism and Islam than I was in Christianity. But it was a profitable, profitable time. I did learn something about other religions in the world, maybe in a way that most people don't get a chance to do so. And I've often thought about those leaders and founders of those religions with respect to Jesus Christ. 
how, how much of a contrast there is. Jesus saves through his cross. It is the power of God unto salvation that you might live in the next age. But Mahavira, probably haven't heard of him, the founder of the Jains, only called himself a bridge builder. And the kind of bridge he built from this world, if you will, to the next, which is nothing like the world we know, or the next, was a bridge that was thin as a razor's edge that you had to cross on your own. It's a famous name for that bridge. Thin as a razor's edge. Let's say it stretched from one end of the Grand Canyon to other, and you had to negotiate that. Contrast that with the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Buddha, very popular. He was more of a therapist than a religionist. He came to, if you will, offer you a therapy for all your ills. But the bottom line is you, you enter into something that is more like death than life. The Greeks knew that. When Socrates is dying, he says for his last words, offer up a cock to Shalepicus. Why? So that he might, the God of healing, save us. And he might be saying that death cures all ills. My friend, we're not entering into death. We're entering into life. Confucius, a brilliant, brilliant man. We know very little about Confucius, actually. We know a little more about Confucianism later on. He has the title in China as the first teacher. The first teacher. Now, he was not the first teacher, but he has the title first teacher because they consider him the greatest teacher of China. And he was a terrific teacher who understood life and understood a lot about life. Some of his sayings are extraordinarily wise. You could almost lift them out and put them in the book of Proverbs. But the truth is, he was not concerned about the next life. He was only concerned about morality in this life. And he actually thought that he and his followers only were really cultured and moral. Those who followed him were called ruse, the wise ones. You're, whatever blessing you have is through morality. Working at it over and over and over till you get it right. I want you to contrast all of that with this one who was exalted upon a cross and he died for you and for me. My friend, if I understand the scriptures, there's enough sin in you and me that we really don't want that light. But this one came into our darkness and he died on the cross for you and to me and he really saved us. And you are here today because it is in the cross of Christ that you glory. That is your salvation. Praise be to God. For the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through his stripes that you and I have been healed. This is the gospel.
Amen.